Hi there. You're listening to the podcast version of 3CR's Monday Breakfast Show. Catch us live every Monday at 7am at 855 on your AM dial, streaming 3CR on the TuneIn app or at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy the show. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You are back with 3CR Monday Breakfast and uh, we're joined today on the phone by Aaron Milvaganam, who is a uh, representative of the Tamil Refugee Council. Um, Tamil asylum seeker Santharuban has been deported to Sri Lanka, where he's at risk of reprisals based on his activities as a former member of the Tamil Tigers. The Australian government deported him despite protests from the Tamil community, refugee advocates and human rights observers. To update us on Santharuban's case and to provide a broader view of cases like his, we have Aaron from the Tamil Refugee Council on the line. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, Will. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, so, uh, a week ago today, Santa Roman was in um, the Melbourne Immigration uh, Transfer Accommodation deten- in Broadmeadows, so the detention centre there. Can you give us a broad timeline of what's happened in his case up until his arrival in Sri Lanka? Yes, uh, so uh, Santa Ruben was deported uh, from Maita last uh, Thursday. Uh, he was actually... Uh, taken to uh, Sydney uh, Wire Road uh, from uh, Mitre Detention Centre and, and he was deported from Sydney Airport. Uh, so for over 12 hours uh, he was on the road to Sydney uh, on Tuesday night and, and then on Thursday around midday he was uh, deported back. Uh, Sandra Rubin arrived uh, late night Sri Lankan time uh, uh, on Thursday uh, he was questioned by the uh, the, the CID, the, the intelligence uh, ring of the, the, the Sri Lankan police, uh, at the airport, and he was released uh, after four hours. Now, generally, when refugees do get deported back, um, they spend a day or two, uh, you know, even if they had no involvement with the Tigers, uh, they spend a day or two in police custody. In Sandra Rubin's case, because many people have been watching this very closely in the international community, uh, Sri Lankan government has uh, uh, decided to uh, let him go, but we, we, we are worried that uh, he could be in trouble in the coming months. Uh, that is generally the case with many uh, deported uh, refugees. Um, and, and we believe that Sandra Rubin will be in trouble uh, in the coming months Sandra Rubin has actually uh, was in hiding in Colombo for the first uh, couple of days. Uh, he has not returned to his village. He uh, he fear uh, he could be targeted in his village, so he has uh, gone to another village, and, uh, and and the family has also joined him as well. Um, so the the children had to uh, change school. Um, they're basically uh, living. Uh, in fear, uh, not knowing what could happen, uh, uh, you know, any time. 
Hi, and it's Jackson here. I just wanted to know, Santa Ruben is a returning um, person who was a member of the Tamil Tigers in the past. What kind of interaction is there between the current Sri Lankan authorities and ex-Tamils? What, what, what is common kind of treatment for people who fought on the other side of that conflict? Tamil, uh, former Tamil Tiger members have been harassed, tortured, even um, forced to disappear by the Sri Lankan state. There was a report by Amnesty International last week which outlined uh, uh, that Tamil, you know, ex-Tamil Tiger members continue to be harassed by the Sri Sena regime. There are a number of reports about sexual uh, uh, abuses against uh, former uh, Carters. Um, so, you know, Tamil for former Tamil Tiger members, anyone... Uh, who are thought to have links with Tamil Tigers uh, face uh, problems uh, in, the, in the hands of the, the Sri Lankan uh, security forces. And so going back a little bit, the um, Tamil Refugee Council and other groups appealed to the UN Committee Against Torture in the hopes of staying the deportation from Australia in the first place. Um, why was this not successful? What reasoning did they give to, um, to denying that stay? Yeah, so we we appealed to the United Nations Committee Against Torture in October last year. Uh, an interim measure was given. We were asked to give a submission, uh, uh, you know, outlining the reasons uh, why Sandor Urban's uh, life is in danger. We gave evidences. Uh, we gave photographic evidence as well as uh, to. Uh, former Tamil Tigers living in the Australian community who were given protection by uh, the Australian government based on their involvement with the, the Tamil Tigers. They gave supporting statements to Sandra Rubin saying that they worked under Sandra Rubin. And this was, this was not accepted uh, by the UN. Uh, the, the surprising part is UN never bothered to give any reason. In fact... Uh, Australia issued a removal notice on 8th of February uh, uh, to Sandra Rubin. On the same day, they had asked the United Nations to lift the interim measure. United Nations waited till the last minute uh, before they uh, lifted the, the interim measure so that Australia could go ahead uh, with the, the deportation. Uh, they, they did not give us any reasons for uh, lifting the, the interim measure. They simply said that we haven't substantiated your claims. Um, to us, we are very disappointed with the United Nations. United Nations has not only let down Sandra Rubin, United Nations has let down the Tamil community, which continues to live in fear of, uh, or, or, you know, Sri Lankan uh, government, uh, so United Nations behaving this way in the last minute, giving Sandra no other option other than being deported back is, uh, is quite um, uh, disappointing. You've expressed disappointment at the UN, but also surely the Australian government. Um, why, uh, what reasoning has the Australian government given for deporting Santa Ruben? And um, why does the Australian government want to deport people like Santa Ruben? Australian government, uh, obviously Sandra Rubin was given opportunities to reveal his involvement uh, with the Tamil Tigers uh, at the early stages. Because of 
negative security assessments by ASIO and because of Australia's close relationship with Sri Lankan government, Sandra Rubin feared for his life uh, if he revealed his involvement with the Tamil Tigers and that's why he did not reveal it uh, in, the, in the early stages, which is the case of many Tamil asylum seekers who had links with the Tamil Tigers. They don't reveal it because they know Australia shares information with the Sri Lankan authorities. Uh, there are uh, agreements between Australian defence and Sri Lanka's defence to uh, share intelligence, and, and it has been widely publicised. And they know that, and, and so they fear share, share, you know, uh, revealing their involvement with the Tamil Tigers. Uh, so Sandorovan didn't reveal it earlier. Uh, when he decided to reveal it, Australian uh, government wouldn't accept his claim. Um, so it's. Uh, it, you know, he was put in a very difficult situation by uh, the, the Australian government. Um, uh, you know, Australia's close relationship with the Sri Lankan government basically uh, ruined his life. Mm. Uh, so now that Santarovan is back in Sri Lanka, um, you said that he's um, moved to a village that's not his home village and he's there accompanied by his family. Are there any organisations um, monitoring his situation um, to to sort of keep his story alive so that the Sri Lankan government don't feel like they can act with impunity? Yes, uh, so the Tamil Refugee Council is keeping a close eye on uh, on on his situation. Uh, uh, locally, we have got a lawyer who is acting on behalf of uh, Sandra Robin. Um, so if, if anything happens, uh, he will alert us and, and we will uh, definitely uh, expose it if, if Sri Lankan government do any uh, anything to him. Unfortunately, you know, with the number of Tamil asylum seekers Australia is uh, deporting, we can't really keep an eye on everyone. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible. Uh, in the last uh, year, Australia denied over 1,400 Tamil asylum claims, uh, and they could all be facing deportation in the uh, coming months. Uh, so there are a large number of Tamils. It's impossible for us to monitor every single Tamil who gets deported back. Uh, but in Sandra Rubin's case, we're hoping uh, the fact that we have got a lawyer there, the fact that we're keeping an eye on what's happening, it may... Uh, it may be enough for the time being, uh, but uh, that's that's not guaranteed. Uh, uh, you know, if, if they could find another reason to uh, put him in prison in six months down the track, uh, we, all we can uh, do is just wait and see what happens. Hi, and what kind of tactics could um, uh, yourselves with the Tamil Refugee Council and other concerned Australians use to convince the Australian government that these uh, people, ex-Tamils, you know, were really put in a situation where they had to fight for their own survival and are not this security risk that they just seem to have been blanketly branded with. Is there any way to shift the Australian government's thinking about, you know, these, these people who were really acting out of desperation? It's It's been a very difficult journey for Tamils uh, over the last six years under the Labour and the Liberal, Liberal government. Um, you know, we, we've had... Uh, the ASIO rejections targeting mainly Tamil asylum seekers, they were Rohingyans and, and, and other groups as well, but majority of the cases were Tamil asylum seekers back in 2011, 12 and 13. 
Uh, we had the enhanced screening process, which targeted Tamils. Um, majority of the the cases that are rejected are Tamils, despite Tamils only representing 20-30% of the, the total asylum uh, seekers. Um, the, the number of cases getting rejected, uh, you know, Tamils are in the majority. Uh, so there's clearly, uh, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a relationship Australia has with the Sri Lankan government, which is uh, impacting uh, Tamil's chances of getting protection visas in Australia. We have tried personally to meet with many uh, parliamentarians to tell them the, the real situation. There has been a number of credible reports in the, in the recent times uh, which outlines the, the ongoing use of torture by the Sri Lankan security forces, yet it's falling on deaf ears. In the case of Sandarubin, we requested to meet with uh, the immigration minister, he refused to meet with us. We had a meeting scheduled. Tamil community leaders had a meeting with, uh, scheduled with Alex Hulk, uh, the assistant immigration minister. He cancelled the meeting in the last minute uh, and never rescheduled the meeting. Um, so we're, we're actually finding it very hard to communicate with uh, 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 parliamentarians uh, to talk to them uh, about uh, you know, how the, the Tamils are feeling. Well, um, Aaron, that's just about what, all we have time for. So thank you so much for joining us here on Monday Breakfast. If uh, people want to get in contact with the Tamil Refugee Council or find out more, um, you can search Tamil Refugee Council on Facebook. Otherwise, you can follow the links on our Monday Breakfast page at 3cr.org.au slash Monday hyphen breakfast. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Uh, like I said, you're listening to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR. Stay tuned. We've got heaps more coming up. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. We're here in the studio with... Um, Bridget Henley, who is the coordinator of special justice projects at Jesuit Social Services. And she's come on the show today to tell us more about the African Visitation and Mentoring Program, which has been running for about seven years. And it's for people of African background, both in and recently released from prison, um, which is also, apart from taking applications for, for, for mentees, um, also seeking to train up volunteer mentors. And to tell us a bit more about this, Bridget, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks. Good morning. Um, so, first of all, who is the African Visitation and Mentoring Program for, and what are its aims? Okay, well, um, the program is um, delivered by Jesuit Social Services, as you mentioned, Will, and um, what it really does is it supports people who are of African background in the Victorian prison system and after their release. 
the main focus of it is really to um, reduce recidivism by providing um, a volunteer mentor who visits someone in prison regularly, usually fortnightly or monthly, um, and then supports that, that person whilst they're in prison, but also in what can be a really challenging time as they really are released back into the community. Mm, so it, it doesn't just end at release. It, there's a continuing contact with the with the mentor and the mentee. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's so right. there's a big focus on the relationship mm. and on the. Um, we I guess under, a lot of our work is relational, and we really understand that once you um, sort of sit down with someone, understand them, understand their story, um, that a lot and, and model some safe and respectful behaviours, that a lot of um, change can be made. Mm-hmm. So on 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 release. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of um, things can the mentee expect um, to to be able to get out of this um, this mentoring program? Like, what kind of help will will they be receiving? Well, really, just really regular contact from someone um, in the community, and it could be that that mentor is part of the African community mm. residing in Melbourne, or it could be that that mentor is not part of that. So our mentors are from all walks of life, but they provide, I guess, a really safe, regular space in what is often a really chaotic existence for people. I mean, 40% of people um, exit prison to homelessness in Victoria, so nearly half the prison population have nowhere to go on mm. release. Mm. So... Uh, it's a really confronting time when you have got to find you know, work, find a place to live, recontact you know, family and friends, a relationship that's often been quite ruptured by what's, what's happened. Um, yeah, really challenging and often there's other issues that you're, you're having to deal with to get your life back on track. That mentor provides yeah, a constant kind of presence in that life of, of the value and of the um, motivation to keep going and, and support. Are the mentors volunteers or are they paid by Jesuit Social Services? No, the, the mentors are all volunteers, yeah. And um, at any given time we have about 35 um, mentoring relationships going in both the prison setting and in the community. Um, yeah, they all are pretty amazing people because they give up a lot of their time it's to go and... It's a year commitment, isn't it? Yeah, we yeah. ask for a 12-month commitment. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So, And some of them would only visit once a month, but a lot would be fortnightly mm. as well. And our thing really to the mentors is... It's better to do a kind of a longer, it's better not to burn out and mm. visit every week and then, yeah, provide another kind of unsettling experience for that mentee. And you talk about providing a safe space, you know, mm. particularly when people are exiting the prison system into homelessness. What mm. kinds of spaces are the mentors and mentees meeting in uh, if that person is homeless or yeah, yeah, that's, un- yeah, unstable? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, always public, always a public space. Um, and we... Um, provide support to that mentor and mentee regularly. So often our senior project officer will attend some of those meetings in the community with um, with the mentor and the mentee, um, set boundaries and, um, yeah, make sure that both people are kind of clear on what their expectations are and um, what the boundaries of that relationship need to be so it's safe and respectful and, and can be sustainable as well. What are, like What is the role that the Jesuit kind of philosophy and, you know, perhaps like involvement from Jesuit brothers mm. and like what kind of influence that has on the program as well? Um, well, I guess all the volunteers are inducted into our way of working, which we, um, I guess is our approach to working with all the programs that we have. So we have a lot of programs in the justice space with justice clients, but we also work in mental health, in education, training and employment, um, in settlement and community building. Um, and what we bring to that is really very much a strengths-based approach. So we separate the person from the behaviour and we work with the person. 
Um, we also understand um, a trauma-informed practice, and that's particularly, I think, relevant to this group as well, many of whom have suffered or endured repeated kind of instances of, of trauma. There's been a lot of war. They've come from war-torn countries. They've spent a lot, like a lot of time in refugee camps and then arrived in Australia with often quite limited support in their settlement. So that's a really important one, one too. But, yeah, we do a two-day intensive training into our way of working with what can be, you know, at times a complex kind of um, presentation, I suppose. Mm. Sounds like a fairly um, sort of holistic approach to, to providing mentorship to people from African descent who have been released from prison. But we're talking about people of African um, backgrounds. African communities are hugely diverse and both mm. culturally and li- linguistically. Mm. Um, how do you ensure that the specific needs of each mentee is met by AVAMP? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's good. I think um, it's really interesting. I reckon because I think um, yeah, they are really diverse. All those sort of cultures, and also I reckon what we've seen in this program is that they're quite diverse in the sense of that some people were born here and some people have not been here very long at all. So even that can be, you know, some people go in and would see people in prison and they'd say, I don't know why this emphasis on me being African. I was born in Australia. They have an Australian accent. They, you know, they go to barbecues. Like, I think it's kind of, it's it's interesting how we kind of use that word and make kind of assumptions based on, on that. But, um... What we, I guess the way we work with that is, again, we look at each individual person and what their needs, issues, aspirations are. So, um, and yeah, and then we try and match that with a mentor who mm. would also, you know, where they'd share some common interests and um, or where we'd say a kind of good match in terms of their location or, yeah, lots of things that we look at. I mean, we just match when we think it's a good match. We don't match when it's, when it's not going to work. And like you said, it's a really f- strong focus on the relationship between the mentor and the mentee. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think there's so much noise around, you know, what it means to be an, an African person, you know, in the media. We've seen a lot. And, mm. um, and there's probably quite a lot of fear in the, in the broader community. But I think, like, by just bringing back to a really simple kind of human interaction, conversation between two people, a lot of those sorts of barriers and fear and separation are really broken down. Mm. You said um, some of your mentors are from the, the communities mm. that uh, the mentees or the ex-prisoners mm. or current prisoners um, are. Have you had any um, situations where a person was a mentee, has gone through, come out and not been a recidivist and become a mentor themselves? Is that uh, something? Yeah, look, that a lot of people really want to do that and express a strong desire to do that and to, it's actually, it's a really common um, thread that you hear when you visit people of African background in prison. I'd really like to, um, you know, they say things like, I'd really like to do something so that people don't make the same mistakes I have, what can I do? The difficulty with that, however, is that you need really um, extensive security clearances to get into Victorian prisons, So, and they would not get those. So, Having been on the other side of yeah, the prison wall. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, So we do sometimes try to use them in community-based settings, but um, in different kind of ways, more around community development activities that we do. There's been a lot of conversation, sorry, Will, um, around the best ways to run um, uh, justice institutions and prisons, particularly for young people. Mm. Now, in your role, I'm sure you spend a lot of time um, in and around prisons. What do you think uh, the industry could do to improve outcomes for people who work in there, for the youth prisoners themselves? Mm. You know, you've been involved with the program now for a few years. What, what do you think needs to change? Um, 
I mean, I think that, and I think Jesuit Social Services would say this as well, what we would say is that there needs to be a lot more focus on support in the community and on diversion programs that both prevent people um, getting into prison but also um, support people who have been or are engaged in offending behaviour in the community. Um, we would say that once you start locking up large numbers of young people who, again, are largely been through repeated instances of trauma and living in poverty, um, and we know that from the statistics, um, that that does that it sort of has a dehumanising kind of effect, both on those young people, but also on the on the people working there as well. So I think that's why we sometimes see behaviours among some of the people that work there that aren't great. And they'll kind of go against, I guess, what has been the um, outcome from state government over the last little while is mm. actually, you know, the opposite of what you're saying. Mm. And I guess also before that, the cuts to um, legal aid as well, which means mm. that people are not only more likely to end up um, as part of the prison mm. system, but also with little representation as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what's happened to this community to some extent too, because they've also, you know, brought... Um, yeah, some difficulties with them in terms of some of them, not all African backgrounds have been, you know, people of African backgrounds have been through war-torn experiences, but some have. And then they've arrived in a community which is increasingly punitive. And like our prison population has doubled mm-hmm. over the last 20 years. So they've kind of been, I think, caught up in that. And mm-hmm. building more. They're yeah, that's building right. More. Yeah, more and more prisons. I wondered, um, with the program, once someone has, like, finished their time of um, being mentored over that you know, one year mm. period. Mm. Is there, I guess, a sense of, um, you know, people feel like a loss of, of you know, having that relationship mm. and, you know, um, is there a way of trying to match people with, I guess, more an ongoing support or, you know, looking at key things to be able to build sustainable relationships like that outside of the program? Yeah, definitely. And okay, the one-year commitment is a minimum, so that's what we'd ask for from volunteers. But we've had some mentoring relationships that have been going for three or four years. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, again, it's about that sort of that consistency. And, um, yeah, and we do. And I think the other thing that that mentoring relationship does is it kind of models a way of having an ongoing relationship um, to people who may not have had that as mm-hmm. well because of so much disruption in their own lives. So, yeah, and we also run a case management kind of aspect to the program too, which is quite short, but that is more focused on getting those um, people linked in with other support services in the community as well. So as we mentioned earlier in the show, you're always receiving applicants for people who want to um, receive mentoring under this program, but right. you just also happen to be open to volunteers. That's right. Um, which we've just been speaking yeah. about. Who do you want to volunteer as mentors in the program? Um, well, lots of people, firstly, would be yeah. good, yeah. <laughs> um, because we do have quite long waiting lists at the moment, so there are more people, and this is obviously completely voluntary. Like, mm. no one has to be um, become a mentee. Everyone who is on the program has put their hand up in, and said, I need help. I want someone to talk to. So even that, we understand the strength in doing that. In mm-hmm. that, in a, um, so we're looking for people really all walks of life, like um, young, old, men, women, um, African, non-African. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah, we're anyone. Really, we. Um, we train and we screen, so not necessarily, not everyone necessarily becomes a mentor. Where we think there's probably other programs that might be better suited to volunteers, we direct them into one. We've got a lot of 
volunteers at Jesuit Social Services. So, but generally we find that a lot of people, most people do come in with kind of the right intentions and the right motivation and want to understand a little bit more about, um, what's happening for young people in, in some of these communities. And you do get that. And our volunteers speak really highly of what they, what they gain from, from being involved. And so how could people find out more about becoming a volunteer if they think that they're the right person for this? Mm. Um, and they want to put their hands up. Of course, we'll have the links on our website as well. Oh, that would be great. But um, how would they be able to get in contact with you folks? Um, yeah, well, they can either um, give us a phone call at, the, at Jesuit Social Services or they can go onto um, the Jesuit Social Services website. So there's a link on there um, under the volunteer tab, which is just www.jss.org.au. Wonderful. And like I said, we'll have links on our website and also on our Facebook page. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Bridget. No, you're welcome. Thank you. And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Hi, Hi. we're from Braver College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. There is listener sponsors who keep the radio station going. When you become a listener sponsor... You get a part of this radio station. You get a little part of it. It's yours. You get a little share of it. It's 3CR Subscriber Drive, and we're asking you to show your love for 3CR. Support your favourite show by calling us on 9419 or online 3cr.org.au/subscribe $35 unwaged $70 waged or 150 solidarity subscribe to 3CR today People lining up uh, out in the street, uh, out in Swiss Street and Collingwood, lining up to take out their listener sponsorship. This week, Peter Davis from Over the Wall speaks to academic essayist Emily Wolfinger, who has written articles studying single mother welfare recipients and how the punitive measures by successive recent federal governments and negative stereotyping by mainstream media have made an impact. My name's Emily Wolfinger and I'm a social academic doing a PhD looking at online user perceptions of soul mother poverty and welfare in Australia. Emily Wolfinger, welcome to Over the Wall on 3CR. Welfare reforms over decades have become, as you wrote, increasingly paternalistic measures that seek to increase obligations of welfare recipients while reducing the responsibilities of governments. Could you explain what you mean by this, please? Uh, Sure. Welfare states, first of all, let me explain that welfare states expanded rapidly across the Western world, including Australia following the Great Depression and in the years after the Second World War. And this resulted in unconditional welfare entitlements, including in Australia the introduction of unemployment and sickness benefits, child endowment, the widow's pension. Later on, a supporting mother's benefit was introduced under the Whitlam government. So during this period, welfare was seen conceptualised differently. It was seen as a means of compensating people for the inequities of the market and as an entitlement of social citizenship. So in the decades since the 1970s, Neoliberal ideas, they've become widely known. 
about the role of the state in the market began to influence political decision-making in countries like Australia. This has seen the repurposing of government as facilitator of the free market economy. This has required, among other measures, the restriction of income support as an intervention in the market through conditions of entitlement, surveillance and punitive measures for non-compliant recipients. The Howard Government's welfare-to-work policies moved new sole parents, those who began receiving the parenting payment single after July 2006, the PPS. They were moved from PPS to New Start once their child was eight. And previously, this shift didn't occur onto New Start till the child was 16 years of age. The Gillard Government's welfare reforms placed tighter measure on single parents. The Gillard Government's sole parent pension cuts, which came into effect in 2013, also impacted people receiving PPS parental payment single before welfare to work came into effect. Therefore, the Gillard Government's change made the shift onto New Start once a child was eight universal for all single parents receiving welfare, regardless of the time frame. And this measure was built upon the Howard Government's 2005 welfare-to-work policy. And how have these measures impacted upon single mothers? We know that during this period of welfare reform, some mothers were already overwhelmingly as a group engaged in some form of employment. We also know that those who weren't tended to have young, particularly dependent children, or to be caring for children with disabilities. So in terms of increasing some mothers' participation in the workforce, the impact of these welfare reforms was marginal. Where it really did impact was to poverty. According to a report released by the Australian Council of Social Services, poverty in sole parent households has actually increased in recent years between 2003 and 2004 and 2013 and 2014 financial years. There was about a, a 4 to 5% increase to poverty in sole parent households and that this was actually linked in the report to welfare to work legislation. As a result, we've also seen an, an increase in child poverty in sole parent families, rising from 18% to 23% in the two years since social security for sole parents was cut in 2013. Could you give some examples of this increase in poverty? Okay, well, first of all, the most dramatic impact would have been seen in terms of the um, payment being cut, so what sole parents received after these reforms was less than what they previously received. Now, whilst you know, many sole mothers have been able to make up the loss in terms of increasing their employment, others have not been able to, others have struggled to do so for a variety of reasons. Going back to what we were speaking about with the Howard government changes, it increased limitations to people on unemployment benefits and to people also receiving single parenting payments and disability. Could you describe these changes and their impact, please? Sure. So Howard made radical changes to welfare system during his time in federal government. First of all, he introduced in 1997 Work for the Doll scheme. This is a major piece of legislation that required long-term unemployed to engage in some form of work in order to continue receiving unemployment benefits. 
Another major piece of welfare legislation which we've talked about that Howard introduced was welfare to work. So this legislation sought to extend the mutual obligation framework and the requirements set for those on unemployment benefits to some of the most disadvantaged, including those on disability and sole parent benefits. So for sole mothers, I guess the impact of this, the impact of this legislation, we've seen a widening in income inequality as these measures have been implemented alongside other policies such as tax cuts for the wealthy, weakening in industrial relations laws and trade liberalisation. So they've all culminated to income inequality since at least the mid-1980s, but certainly since Howard's era. And also has been more likely to experience domestic violence. Women are more likely Mm -hmm. to experience sexual harassment in the workplace and having a casualised market, again, places women at great income vulnerability, do you think? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We know that women generally, 70%, are engaged in either part-time or casual employment. For sole mothers, this is higher. You know, it is precarious in the context of discrimination and bullying uh, in the workplace. This is intensified for women because of their apparenting responsibilities and often they need to be present for their children. Uh, for example, when their children are sick, they don't have a partner to help pick up the slack. These welfare-to-work uh, changes certainly sort of intensify the economic situation to solve parents in the context of all these other things that are going on simultaneously. Both Labor and the Coalition have showed a mutual convergence in policies extending obligations and and penalties to welfare recipients and why are the two forms of government contributing to welfare policy that reflects I guess what we could call a dominant group of taxpayers as being favourable citizens while leaving minority groups open to negative stereotypes? This has certainly been the case for the conservative side of politics prioritising the wealthy end of town. To answer your question largely because unemployment has become conflated with social problems like welfare dependency in the case of Liberal governments and poverty and social exclusion in the case of Labor governments. While our economic participation has become associated with wellbeing, so the role of government really in the last several decades has been to facilitate that, although the emphasis on what needs to happen is different. For Liberals, the emphasis has generally been on jobs, for Labor, it has generally been on education. Tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations are seen by Conservatives as creating the job that will eliminate welfare dependency, the trickle-down effect. Increasingly, we know this is not to be the case as we're seeing widening income inequality. So clearly, I think this is an issue that, that Australians are beginning to listen to more and more. You know... The old stereotype of doll bludger and doesn't wash as well anymore with Australians as it has in the past. These policies have resulted in this situation that impacts terribly on many of us, not just the most vulnerable. Yeah, if it can happen to one person, it can happen to anyone is an adage that's it's often used and there's a huge scope of people becoming unemployed in, in many different situations at the moment. Exactly.
The Victorian Socialists bring together socialist groups including Socialist Alternative, the Socialist Alliance, and individual activists, unions, and community organisers. On the line now, we've got Colleen Bolger, who's running on a ticket with Steve Jolly. And are you there, Colleen? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. So this is, I guess, a pretty interesting um, new position for uh, socialist groups and some individuals that are forming together to contest the um, state election coming up in November. How did this kind of come about? Yeah, well, we're really excited uh, to put this project together uh, to stand Steve Jolly in the uh, position of... Uh, Northern Metro Upper House uh, in the coming state election in November. We recognised that there was a bit of an opportunity uh, with uh, the profile that Steve Jolly has as a uh, Yarra councillor and has been um, in that position now for 14 years and um, a spokesperson on um, lots of different progressive uh, causes from um, from that position uh, as well as uh, the fact that uh, the Northern Metro is one of the most progressive electorates in um, Australia and so uh, we think that the people there, the very um, highly working class uh, voter base um, that traditionally votes for Labor and, and the rising Green vote in the um, inner north are likely to be receptive to the uh, to the message that we're uh, running on, that we need a socialist in Parliament as well as I think the you know the last factor that uh, is widely observed uh, that there is a real uh, disdain for mainstream uh, politics, a sense that Labor um, look more and more like the Liberals, uh, and um, and people sort of looking for an alternative from the um, mainstream political parties, which unfortunately uh, you know can be taken up. By um, by the right and the far right, and so you know we see it as incumbent on uh, the left to take uh, any advantage of any opportunity that we can to try to pose a left alternative to the um, to the mainstream parties as a way of sort of um, uh, stifling some of the oxygen that the right. Um, get by otherwise appearing um, as though they're the outsiders and they're the champions of um, uh, ordinary people. I guess for Steve Jolly and also Socialist Alliance and Sue Bolton that contesting in elections is something that has been a part of their um, campaigning and their like organisations and things for quite a while. But it seems quite a shift for a Socialist Alternative to be involved in electoral politics and getting involved in um, this kind of project. Is there something, is the political situation you feel has shifted in a way to make that kind of change or, you know, what what is the kind of thing for Social Alternative to take this kind of leap? Yeah, well, Social Alternative has always uh, said that we would be open to participating in uh, electoral campaigns where we think uh, the left can get a good showing um, and, in fact, we've supported Steve Jolly's last two election uh, campaigns uh, for the lower house uh, because we recognise that he is somebody with a uh, bit of a profile and has you know, managed to get about 8% of the vote uh, in the last two previous uh, federal, elect- uh, 
beg your pardon, state elections. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we see this as being more than just flying a flag uh, and just, you know, contesting for, uh, say, propagandistic purposes. We are, you know, we can, we recognise that uh, Steve is a real chance uh, to um, to snap up the, the last seat in um, the Northern Metro and uh, we can see that having a socialist in, in Parliament as a, a voice for all of the different uh, struggles and an advocate for the picket lines and, and campaigns that, uh, you know, that, that we're all a part of would be um, a real shot in the arm um, for the left. So, uh, so we're, you know, it, it is a, a bit of a new experience for us to participate uh, so centrally and, um, you know, and, and to throw our energies into it so, so vigorously. But, um, you know, it's a, a great experience and we think will be really worthwhile. So, Colleen, you say it's going to be more than just flying a flag, that you're going to be a viable uh, option for people to cast their vote for in the state election. Um, what are the core issues that uh, Stephen Jolly and yourself and the Victorian Socialists are going to be campaigning on uh, to get people out to the ballot box and voting for your party? Well, I think it's a combination of uh, of taking up the issues that affect working class living standards as well as uh, campaigning around uh, progressive social issues. So, uh, you know, we will be um, campaigning around the... Uh, the cost and the lack of frequent public transport services, particularly in the Upper North uh, uh, area, um, as well as the question of housing affordability, both for um, renters and for public housing tenants. There's a big issue in this state uh, at the moment of nine public housing estates uh, being flagged for um, sell-offs to developers uh, mm. and uh, then... Uh, and it seems totally unclear uh, whether you know what amount of, of public housing um, stock will be available for uh, tenants in the new redeveloped um, estates, as well as the fact that it's a it's a move towards further privatisation mm-hmm. of uh, of public housing. And so we've put forward uh, you know the need to uh, radically increase the public housing stock mm-hmm. uh, by building 50,000 new um, public housing um, units in order to accommodate the uh, 35,000 people who are currently um, on the wait list and an estimated it would be another 35,000 that um, if they knew how to navigate the criteria of the um, of the public housing list would um, would be eligible to be on it, and so that's you know a critical issue I think, Absolutely. as well as um, you know as well as for renters, uh, we want to raise the debate um, and the demand of capping rents to uh, to income um, because you know we're seeing how much housing costs uh, eat into um, to people's uh, income, but as well you can't just talk about cost of living without addressing uh, the fact that. Wages are stagnating um, over, uh, you know, many over some decades now, and um, and so that puts the question of union rights, um, uh, workers' rights, front and centre. Hi, Colleen. Will here. Um, so you, you made reference to um, sort of stagnation of wages, but that stands somewhat 
um, counter to a demographic shift that seems to be happening in the inner suburbs of Melbourne where we've got increasing gentrification. And some yeah. people attribute the, the, the victories that the Green, Victorian Greens have had to that shift because we're seeing a rise of centre-left young professionals. Um, will, won't they be sort of voting against their, their interests as successful capitalists by, by voting for the Victorian <laughs> Socialists? Um, that's a really interesting point, Will. And one of the things that uh, I think we're conscious of is that there is a perception out there that uh, it's the inner city um, voters who are more wealthy, um, voters who are receptive to progressive social, uh, progressive social agenda, uh, whereas beyond Bell Street, uh, you know, self-interested workers are, um, are socially reactionary. And uh, whereas we uh, think that actually campaigning around uh, the cost of living and workers' rights and, uh, you know, and the attacks on living standards that have been relentless for the last 30 years, um, mm-hmm. combined with taking up uh, for example, the racist scapegoating of um, of African migrant migrants that we've seen already feature as part of um, this election campaign, uh, the hysteria around law and order, uh, and you know other social questions is something that um, you know that can have appeal when uh, people are prepared to make an argument around it and show that these issues are put up precisely to be distractions from defending. Um, de- defending people's living standards, uh, and in terms of you know the um, uh, the sort of added affluence of the uh, of the of people in the in the north, I think um, you know it's it's fair to say that they're uh, you know um, they're they're wealthier, but everybody I think stands to gain from things like you know everybody struggles with uh, housing affordability. Everybody would like a better public transport. System um, in this city, uh, you know, and um, you know, precisely people are, are looking towards the Greens because they don't think um, Labor offer enough. So I, I do think um, there is a, a section of people who will be, you know, receptive to a, uh, you know, a, a more explicitly socialist agenda. Thanks a lot, Colleen. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this morning. Um, but if people would like to find out more, you can head to victoriansocialist.org.au and we'll put the, uh, the links up with the show today. Thanks a lot, Colleen. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Monday Breakfast here on 3CR. joined in the studio now by Shirley Winton, who's a member of the National Coordinating Committee of IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australian Network. Good morning, Shirley. Thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning, everyone. Now, four weeks ago, Christopher Pine announced uh, around $3.6 billion, which he described as an ambitious, positive plan to make Australia one of the top 10 arms dealers in the world within just 10 years. A quick look through recent announcements from the Department of Defence just shows a staggering amount of recent and future investment. They're building tanks in our former car plants, weapons research and development at our universities, apprentice training for arms manufacturing and constant recruitment on television for Army, Navy and Air Force. 
Shirley, why do you think we're seeing such a boom in war investment in this country? Um, well, obviously, we can all smell war in the, in the air. So there are preparations for war, for major wars, in fact. <clears throat> it's a very similar situation to the, just in that period before the First World War. But specifically to now, um, the boom in the war investment in Australia is, has largely been initiated and driven by um, the US, the mining that its allies like Australia, um, and Australia is doing it very willingly and cooperatively, um, uh, you know, as a, as a subservient lackey, in my point of view, to contribute more to the um, to the US global war machine and its military industrial complex. So, not I, I think that within a matter of seconds of Trump being anointed as the president, um, he made the announcement that he wants um, the Allies to increase their budget, their defence budget, but in, in real terms it means um, to be more deeply inter- integrated into the US war machine to um, develop their defences or defence forces um, in, as in, interoperable with, with the US global military. Um, and, and, and to play a much more front, upfront role in what is basically the US global military agenda, which is to, at the moment, seems that they're really, um, scratching over the itching for a war. Now, the bulk of this $3.8 billion of working people's taxes, um, will go to the multinationals, weapons and high tech research equipment corporations. Um, and many of these are already here, so there's Lockheed Martin, as everyone's quite familiar with, who are not only going to have set up their, um, um, their, their large research, first and the biggest um, research centre at Melbourne University, but they will be expanding and setting up new facilities at this new um, military precinct that the Victorian government mm. is, uh, has announced will be established at Fisherman's Bend. Um, and the other, the other ones are, um, obviously the Raytheon and Boeing. Boeing is already at, at this, uh, Victorian military precinct. There's the British BAE and then there's the French, um, Tails and the mm. French Tails have actually on. already, um, own the um, ammunitions factory in Benalla and um, and in New South Wales, so they've actually just had their contract extend, ex- extended. So there'll be huge amounts of that part of that 3.8 billion will go into those um, facilities that are basically run by the corporations. Now, like you said, Shirley, we've seen a real shift from, you know, I guess like after the Second World War, we had the start of the permanent arms economy led by the US to really just spend endless amounts of money on warfare through the Cold War, you know, where stockpiles of weapons were made that were not used for a really Mm. long time. But since Trump's announcement that he wants um, America's partners to be stop, you know, leeching off the American taxpayers and to start pulling their weight, we've seen a real shift in Australia Mm. to, like, really Mm. boost up from, I think, number 20 on the... um, list of, of defence spending and to, like um, Jackson said, they want to get into the top ten list. You know, Of exports, not just making yeah, weapons for ourselves, yeah, but yeah. for other countries as well. But something, and I think that that's a really scary proposition for anyone in Australia who is against war mm. and militarism. Mm. But like you were just mentioning there, there's the privatisation of militarism as well. 
and you know the companies that are involved and how heavily Australia has become involved in that as well. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I think I think that um, I think that the government was actually prepared for backlash, and that's why this announcement of 3.8 billion was under the smokescreen of creating jobs for Australian mm-hmm. workers and. Uh, propping up, uh, which is sort of declining and disappearing Australia's manufacturing industry. And in fact, there won't be jobs. There won't be manufacturing jobs. There'll be, there might be, you know, a small number, a few dozen of jobs, maybe a couple of hundred, but not to the, you know, and there will not be permanent jobs. But the other whole aspect of it is that it's shifting, restructuring Australia's economy now into basically an economy that is going to be totally dependent on the permanent um, global wars. So it's, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that it seems that the American economy is pretty much moving in that direction. And now Australia is like a 51st state of the US is restructuring its economy as part of the, of that, of that US, you know, corporation, corporate economy that's based on, on wars or is dependent on continuation and permanence of wars. Yeah, it's been a focus of IPAN at your last annual conference, I know, looking at the US-Australia alliance and how that impacts our uh, security here in Southeast Asia where we are. I mean, we just had Turnbull and Trump sit down uh, in Washington over the weekend uh, and a Fairfax report yesterday said that uh, Trump was urging Turnbull, it's in, I think it's in the Herald Sun as well this morning, to commit to exercise, exercises to challenge Chinese expansion in the South China mm-hmm. Sea to, to, to sail some, some frigates or some yeah. ships into chi- yeah. Chinese uh, waters. And at the same time, the Trump administration announced new, very confrontational sanctions, which James mentioned earlier against North Korea. And Trump, quote, warned of very rough outcomes that would be very, very unfortunate for the world if North Korea didn't halt their nuclear program. Do you think Australians should be worried about being dragged into a much larger conflict? Um, I I think Australian people should be really, really more than concerned. I I think that there should be a public outcry about Australia being drawn into war that, A, you know, has a potential to to inflict enormous suffering and hardship, um, not just, you know, like, not just on the Korean Peninsula, um, but it has a potential to, to spread in right throughout Asia Pacific. It has a potential to develop into a nuclear war. And I noticed that Trump did say, talked about the possibility of a of a limited war on North Korea. Now, what is a limited war on North Korea? Is he talking, are they talking, is, are they considering of actually sending troops, you know, which would inevitably involve Australian troops? If American troops are sent into North Korea, so will, you know, it's inevitable Australian troops will, will be sent there. Um, and so the, the other, the other, of course, aspect to it is that, um, it's, it, it seems like it's all pr- deliberately provocative and they're, mm-hmm. they're really itching for war. They want to create a situation or an excuse to, to start up the war. With the, um, you mentioned the South China Sea, um, the freedom of navigation. Britain, um, the Prime Minister of Britain has announced a few days ago that, um, that a Briti- the British Navy is now steaming into the Stimming is not the right word. That's a bit old-fashioned. You know, sailing. sailing. Cruising. Sailing. Well, they don't have sails anymore, do they? Those mm. big military naval ships. Um, yeah, cruising into the South China Sea 
for the um, you know the um, the exercises, the freedom of navigation. Sending a submarine hunter, I think Theresa May said, in, well, into, the, well into that water. Yeah. yeah. So they are they're creating, and, and perhaps when um, Trump said about limited war, maybe he calculated, or they're calculating that maybe. China doesn't want a war, so it may not be drawn into war if there is an attack by America, Japan and Australia on North Korea. It's hard to predict, but it's once it, the war starts, the, the likelihood of it spreading is mm. almost inevitable. And well, in any case, that will lead to millions of deaths in North Korea yes. to begin with. So, I mean, Korea even if well. the war doesn't spread, it's still utterly unacceptable. Yeah, mm. and just adding to the litany of wars that are uh, being mm. undertaken by the U.S. Mm. at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of kind of um, domestic-style saber-rattling happening as well. The U.S. have come out and banned Chinese-made telecommunications mm. products from their government departments, advise Australia to do the same, which follows on from ASIO banning Huawei and ZTD from uh, tendering for NBN contracts a few years ago. Um, there's also been a recent appointment of, a, of an ex-Pacific Command um, uh, Navy Admiral, Admiral uh, Harry Harris, I think his name is. Um, what can you tell us about uh, that appointment and how it uh, also signifies um, perhaps a coming conflict with China? Well, I mean, I think people know Harry, Admiral Harry Harris. He's been in charge of the, held the command <coughs> of American and all their allies' forces in Asia Pacific. Um, so he's a very senior, high-positioned um, military man, and he's a warmonger. Um, his history is of being a warmonger. He's, um, he, he wants war with China. Um, he's made very provocative statements mm-hmm. about, about China, about South China Sea, and similarly with, with North Korea. Um, I thought the one of them, like the cat was let out of a bag a bit. Um, there was a when he was the announcement was made, the Financial Review um, ran a story about this announcement and said that this was the most significant and senior appointment mil, um, into that position since um, 1973-74 appointment of Marshall Green to that position, and uh, Marshall Green, Green was sort of had just freshly came back from from Indonesia and the, and bef- and after that from Chile where there were um, coups that um, now it's been confirmed that America was deeply involved in and uh, shortly after his appointment there was a um, as everyone knows in 1975 there was dismissal undemocratic dismissal of the Whitlam government so I think that that we. I mean, it's a matter of joining the dots together. Mm. Um, but he's, um, I think it's a real message that America is sending to Australia. But also he's not going to be like a little retired diplomat. Um, he's, as he's himself said, that he's, a, he's an army man, he's a military man, and uh, he's very vocal about China, he's very vocal about Australia as being a, a reliable and servile ally and that America is the master of, the, of Australian military forces. So uh, there's all, there's a, you know, um, um, all these aspects that you put together and I think that there's a pretty serious picture that's being 
that's mm. emerging. One of the things that, you know, with Trump and, you know, his election <clears throat> has been met with a lot of uh, sneer and, you know, I guess the jokingness of that. But I think, you know, from what we're hearing today and what we're talking about, there's actually very real consequences mm-hmm. and, you know, that mm. Trump is not just a buffoon to um, no, the to side show. Yeah. And I think that... Um, Harry Harris's appointment is an indication of that, of someone who has a strategic military um, ideology that they're trying to get through and the impact that is going to have on the global region and how it has on our region here as well. be very interesting to keep watching it. Uh, Shirley, thank you so much for joining us uh, in the studio this morning. Um, We'll definitely put up some links to IPAN's website and future events uh, coming up. I should just mention that IPAN... um, IPAN is um, alternative, I guess, is an independent foreign policy and, and a peaceful foreign policy which uh, promotes, you know, sovereignty of other countries. Um, but which, uh, in, in one of our one of our policies on the South China Sea, is that we believe that all the um, our view is that um, all the foreign installations, military installations, and troops should be withdrawn from the from the peninsula and from the area, but at the same time we're saying to China that China has to respect the sovereignty of, of, of countries mm. um, in, the, in that region as well and that it should be left to the countries in those regions to resolve the disputes. I think we would like to have you on again to talk about <laughs> IPAN's policy. Uh, we have run out of time and up next Thank is... Thank you very much. Up next is Women on the Line. Thank you so much to everyone listening to Monday Breakfast and uh, don't forget to tune in to Tuesday Breakfast tomorrow morning, same time same channel. Wonderful. And you can check us out online at 3cr.org.au slash Monday hyphen breakfast. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.